This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore. Tune in as we ask experts in the industry more about their lives and their approach to success. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's listen to today's episode. This is JCU Conversations, a podcast show from James Cook University, Singapore, where we engage experts in the industry to learn more about their lives and their approach to success. Hello, my name is Nikki Hodgman, and in my role as an Associate Director at James Cook University, Singapore, I work across a number of special projects. Our guest today is Mr. Bill Twiddell. Mr. Twiddell has been the Chancellor of James Cook University since 2016. He's the university's fifth chancellor and the first JCU alumnus to be elected to the role. Welcome, Bill, and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Nicola. I'm delighted to be invited along. Now, Bill, I'm going to take you back in time, if that's okay. Um, So you graduated from JCU uh, in Townsville, I believe? I did, indeed. And then you actually worked for JCU for a while. So, so how was that experience moving from a, you know, a student uh, to, to go and actually work at the institution? Look, it was, it was terrific. Um, um, I'd started in the library, my first full-time job, and then I'd moved from that, where I was in charge of interlibrary loans. Then I moved across into the administration uh, where my formal job was to be head of graduate admissions. Uh, but often because of vacancies, I had to fill in as the publications. Uh, officer. So that took me through till about the end of uh, 1975. Um, And I'd always been interested in international relations uh, and uh, politics. Uh, And my role in the administration uh, meant that uh, I looked after foreign affairs department officers who came to the university and other universities recruiting. Remember, there were only 17 universities then. There's now something like 40. Um, So uh, one of those people was a fellow called Tony Verner. And I looked after him in 1974 and just talked to him about the job and what it was like and, uh, you know, sort of trailed my coat a little about whether I might uh, be uh, the sort of person I looked for. Tony thought not. Uh, so I just I didn't care too much about that. I, everything was hard copy in those days. So I kept my um, hard copy application and left it on the veranda of my house out in, um, out in Kerwin. Uh, and left it. And the next year, um, somebody else came through, a fellow called Bill Fisher. Uh, By then, I was on the cusp of getting my second degree, my economics degree, and I had the same conversation with Bill, and um, uh, he encouraged me to apply. I did apply. Uh, It was an arduous, drawn-out process, a preliminary interview in Brisbane, three or four days of interviews and grilling in Canberra, you know, essay writing, psychological testing. Amazingly, I passed that. Uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, in, and I remember the freezing cold. I, I wore the warmest thing I had, which was a, a suit for that big occasions. Got in late on an August night and had to walk, uh, you know, I guess about half a mile uh, to find somewhere to eat at that time of night. And I never remember before or since being quite so cold. But, uh, <laughs> so they did all the things, extensive character tests and, and that sort of stuff. I remember Joe Baker, who's one of the great icons of James Cook University, as you'd know, he was a foundation uh, staff member and so forth. And Joe was then head of Ames. And I put him down as one of my referees to be spoken to about um, my, for my security clearance. And I got a call from Joe once and uh, he just sort of said he had this lovely way of speaking. He said, Bill, a couple of men in suits have come to see me about you and 
I told them a lot of things and I said, well, what were they like, Joe? And he said, well, almost human. Those were, <laughs> those were, those were people from ASIO. And then I had the training year I got in. Uh, I had the try. I think I was the only Queenslander chosen out of, I think it was 34, 35. And it was unusually, uh, there were 20 men, 15 women, which was a higher proportion of women than is usually given credit for uh, back in that day. And, and some of the real talents uh, were the women. Um, I was, we were all very nervous in that training year because you might recall that the Fraser government had been, had come in at the end of 1975 after the sacking of Whitlam, we'd been recruited under the Whitlam government uh, and uh, came in under Fraser. Now, that's not a political statement. It's just that um, when Mr. Fraser became prime minister, he froze all recruitment into the public service. Um, many, including me, I'd resigned my job, I'd sold my house and so forth. And the department was very bravely said, no, we'll hang on to these people. But there was a persistent rumour that all or some of us would be punted. We'd be, we'd be thrown back out again. And I was elected by the students to go and speak to management about this. And would we be all thrown out? And if not all of us, would there be a new order of merit or would we be thrown out on the order of merit that we were selected on all these nervous questions? And but we hung on. And um, so, yeah, and two other graduates from James Cook applied at the same time. And um, uh, sadly, they weren't successful, but went on to have very good careers elsewhere. So, um, look, I think really that it was a career, what I was seeking and what I got uh, was uh, a job that really tested me, uh, not just intellectually, which I think is important, but also in terms of variety of experience, uh, my adaptability, my, my flexibility in different situations. Uh, overall, I, I figured out that I had 23 shifts um, in that time over the 40 years. Uh, I had eight full-time postings. Um, I was Chief of Staff to the Foreign Minister for a couple of years. Uh, and the house I'm now living in, in in Townsville is the place I've stayed longest as an adult anywhere because uh, I've now been here a bit over five years. So that was it, but I, I loved it. A very uh, transient but remarkable um, yeah. career, and that thank you for that um, that you know quick overview. Um, there are a few things that, that sort of jump out at me, and I, I happen to know that um, that you uh, that you did meet uh, Her Majesty the Queen uh, when she actually um, came to to uh, JCU to. Uh, yeah, uh, in no, 1970. A... Um, no. And I wonder if meeting the, the Queen might have, you know, inspired you to, to get onto that world stage. No, actually, I don't see a connection. In fact, I wasn't like I wasn't fortunate enough to meet her. That's a oh. that's that's a standing family joke because uh, my wife had just started. Well, not my wife then, but my wife had just started university that year, and she was one of the bright young, you know, commerce students and and others chosen to meet Her Majesty in the library. Now, at that time, I worked at the library. So my wife get to, got to hobnob with the royal family uh, and I got to be an usher. So uh, I didn't get to meet the Queen until I was Deputy High Commissioner in London right. in the period 20, 2002 to 2005. You, know. you didn't so, cut uh, the mustard until then? But... No, no, I was just a funky. You know? uh, oh. But my wife was the star attraction. That would so you, you needed to, uh, to, to earn, your, earn your stripes uh, on the way up to, uh, to, That's to right. one up your wife. <laughs> Chris might even shoot me for saying this, but she was always worried that she may have broken royal protocol by talking to the Queen before the Queen spoke, you know, you're not meant to do that. And then when Chris met the Queen again in the, in, in the early 2000s, um, uh, you know, at Buckingham Palace with me, 
I said, did she mention that episode? She said, no. I said, darling, I think you're forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. And of course, the time that you were in the UK as Deputy High Commissioner uh, was quite a tumultuous time, I believe. It was just after the, or during the 2002 bombings. Yeah, I had the lot, actually. I was there from 2002 to 2005. Um, so I was there, yes, um, I was there for the bombings on the underground. And um, you might remember that uh, in that episode, of course, um, one Australian, when they, when they there was a displaced attack on a bus by one of the terrorists, um, the, a person killed in that attack was an Australian and uh, of Vietnamese origin, as it happens. And I, I mentioned that because they later went on to be ambassador to Vietnam. But um, yeah, so that was, as you could imagine, uh, a horrifying experience. And um, of course, you know, if something catastrophic happens in Britain, there is bound to be Australians involved. Uh, so when that happened, we had to deploy quickly. Uh, people were around all the hospitals. The communications were very uh, you know, disrupted, as you'd expect, because everybody's um, phoning hither and yon. Um, so we had to dispatch people out to the uh, various hospitals to check on Aussies. And you never, you never do know. Uh, we found in one of the other disasters, I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but there was a train crash at Potter's Bar uh, sometime earlier than that. And we checked, any Aussies? No, no, no Aussies. The police, the, um, police authorities told us, the British police. Then we saw an interview of Prince Charles talking to somebody with a broad Aussie accent uh, in a hospital bed, but she'd been travelling on a, a British passport, as so often they do. The lesson from that, of course, was that you don't rely on that sort of information to get people out into the field, and that's that's a bit of a challenge because you never know. Aussies are a broad church. Yeah, absolutely. Aussies everywhere, and um, and not least our beautiful Aussie community in in Singapore and our, our Singaporean friends. Which, yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I, I do think that some of these experiences must really have shaped your leadership skills, honed your leadership skills, and. You know, leadership is obviously always topical, but particularly so in the world at the moment. And I just wondered if you might have any um, any advice for our, our community around, um, you know, how one does de- develop these leadership skills and, and, and how and the responsibility of using those skills um, appropriately. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a good question, Nicola. That's what people always say when they're trying to think of a, a clever answer. But I do think it is a very good question. I think the starting point is to say that uh, leaders aren't only bosses, if you know what I mean. I mean, you, there, there are leadership roles um, well below CEO or whatever it might be. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. So I think I was very lucky uh, to find myself in leadership positions fairly early. Uh, even at JCU in the early 70s, I was as I said before, in charge of interlibrary loans, in charge of graduate admissions and so forth. Small beer, but still uh, starting on the bottom rungs of of leadership positions. Um, Then when I joined DFAT, uh, or DFA as it was then, I pretty quickly uh, found myself in leadership roles. I joined in 76 in the early 80s. I was head of the Ministry on Cabinet Liaison Section. Um, I went on to be head of the political section and Deputy High Commissioner in New Delhi, uh, head of the South and um, the Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan section, et cetera, et cetera. So I had, you know, I was lucky uh, to get those sorts of experiences pretty early. And, and I think about halfway through my career, I was promoted into the senior executive service, which is sort of like the ambassadorial rank. So, you know, so then from then on in both Canberra and then abroad, I was able to um, 
exercise leadership roles um, uh, in various high commissions and embassies and consulates general. Uh, just on uh, very quickly on that, I mean, people often ask the difference between an embassy and a high commission. Well, it's a very simple thing. A high commission is in a Commonwealth country and an, uh, an ambassador, you know, embassy is in a non-Commonwealth country. So if, you're, if I had been posted in Singapore, which I was never lucky enough to be, but I was in Sri Lanka, for example, I was high commissioner. Uh, when I was sent to head the, um, our positions in, in Manila and in Hanoi, of course, I was ambassador because they're not Commonwealth countries. And the further wrinkle is that when I was sent to Hong Kong, which is a pretty big mission, um, I was consul general because that's what you are if you're the head of a mission in a, not in a capital city. So if you're in New York, for example, or if you're in Los Angeles or Hong Kong, you're a consul general. So that's a sorry, sorry about the, the digression, but I think that that's just to say that um, leadership roles um, came pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for people who saw that potential in me. Is your question partly about what you think makes a good leader? Um, well, I guess, and how you draw on those skills in yeah. times of, of, you know, where people are really looking to you um, yeah. to, to, to shape a response and to, uh, to you know, roll the sleeves up. It's, it must be yeah. quite, um, quite a challenge. Look, I, a couple of things here. Um, defining leadership is tricky. I mean, it's aligning people with a vision and leading them, you know, taking them in the direction that's, 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 um, that's identified. That's, I guess, one way of putting it. But I think the keys are be honest and authentic. You know, that's your first thing. If you don't know, you don't know. Don't fake it. People will tell a mile away. You know, um, be honest, admit when you don't know the answer, uh, then endeavour to find it. Uh, rely on the team around you uh, and trust their strengths. That's, so that's all honest and authentic. Play to your strengths, hire to your weakness. You can't be an expert at everything. Uh, so, you know, play to the things you know you're, you're good at or other people tell you you're good at uh, so that objectivity is there. Uh, and fill the gaps with people around you. If you're a CEO, of course, you can do that by hiring. Um, if not, you have other ways of doing it in the public sector, for example. So that's that. Uh, work at being a good communicator. Uh, effective communications is the cornerstone, I think, of successful teams and, and leaders. Um, that includes active listening and plain speaking. Um, on that point also, it's important to take care to steer but not discourage others from putting forward their views. By that, I mean, if I say, look, folks, I think we should do X, what do you think? Uh, two sorts of people don't come forward. The lazy people, you know, who think, oh, oh yeah, whatever, you know, he's, get, he's getting the big pay. Uh, or the people who think, oh, look, I had another way of looking at that, but he seems hell-bent on it, so I'll hush my mouth. You miss those, you miss that talent. And on the first of them, I believe, don't let them off the hook. You know, don't let people think, oh, I'll just sit this one out, I'll coast, because often those are people who really have something uh, to offer. So you've got to bring them out. So the open question, build rapport with your team. Um, uh, the time you take to, that's, I think this comes to your point well, uh, the time you take to build your reputation as a leader, as being one who consults and does value everyone, uh, gives you credit for the day, and the day does come where you can't be quite so consultative, you have to say, Guys, I'll explain it all later, but let's get cracking and do this, you know, because sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you just have to do that. Um, follow me out of the trench and we'll, I'll, learn, I'll tell you all about it later on. And that's, 
I think this question of mutual uh, respect. I think the final thing, and there's many more things you could say, is never you never stop learning. You know, um, the Vietnamese, uh, who are wonderful people, have a lovely succinct expression about education being a lifelong process. It, it's hock my hock my. That means forever learning. And uh, you know, no matter what stage of life you're in, and I'm now in my seventies, you can still learn more. I'm still learning. I'm learning from people one seventh of my age uh, still, uh, and you know, just be open to new possibilities and let life uh, take you in sometimes very surprising directions. Some wonderful, wonderful messages in there, I think. And, um, and, and, and while we're thinking about some of those lovely positives, obviously your, your travels, your career has, have taken you far and wide and you've referenced some, some lovely spots there. Is, is a diplomat allowed to have a favourite? <laughs> it's a bit like your favourite child, isn't it? Yes. You know, like, um, no, I will try to answer that. I don't. I don't what I've just said isn't a, 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 isn't meant to evade the question. Look, I think um, we had sort of eight long-term overseas postings, and they were they were terrific. And in addition to that, I had a couple of short-term ones, Nicosia and and in um, uh, Dar es Salaam. So you know, I've been a very lucky fellow. Um, all of them. I had Bangladesh, Greece, India, Sri Lanka. Hong Kong, UK, Vietnam, the Philippines, and the ones I've mentioned, the short-term ones, they had great features professionally and personally. Uh, one of our sons was born in Greece. Uh, the other elder one likes to say that he was conceived in Bangladesh, but that's, that's a hard thing to prove. Um, but, <laughs> but I tried to focus my career on Asia. Um, six of the eight were in Asia. The two outside Asia I didn't ask for. But one happily was in Athens and the other one was in London. So I can tell people I've stayed in Asia except to go to the home, the birthplace of democracy and the birthplace of parliamentary democracy. That makes it sound more preordained than it actually was. But so getting to the question, look, I think um, Chris, who's been, you know, Chris is a JSU graduate. She's been with me now 49 years. Um, uh, she and I would agree um, that our top three uh, would be the United Kingdom, um, India and Hanoi, splitting them and Vietnam, splitting them up is fairly pointless. And um, I've just mentioned, of course, your first posting is always terribly special. And that in our case was Bangladesh. Your first ambassadorial job for me was Sri Lanka, of course, important. Your last posting you're sentimental about, and that was the Philippines. So all of them were great. But uh, seeing you've asked the question, I think those would be the top, top three. And I think one thing that is consistent throughout your very varied career of, you know, with diplomacy and uh, um, foreign policy and uh, is people. That seems yeah. to be the theme. It's all about relationships. Would that uh, be your assessment? That's very true. You know, I, I think that's it. And that's what I, I like about it. I think that's um, in a way why this was a job that appealed to me because it, um, I'm interested in the ideas. I'm, I'm you know, really to be, what an ideal combination to be working on the formulation and execution of Australia's foreign trade and, um, and aid policies. I mean, that in itself is extremely intellectually interesting, but also to be working always among such incredibly interesting people. Uh, because, you know, one thing that comes with being the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, you're building links with other departments of uh, in Australia, you're building links with 
the rest of the Australian community? Of course you are, because you're privileged to be able to represent them uh, in, in overseas environments and to be trying to shape policy to, to advance their interests. So, so that's one thing. But the rich, um, uh, you know, the rich environment of people you meet overseas, you know, the, uh, the talented people in other countries, the talented people in foreign ministries, the people you rub shoulders with in the village in Bangladesh or Vietnam or something like that. It's an extraordinary opportunity to meet uh, incredibly interesting and, and talented people. That's, you, you've nailed it there. I think that is really one of the great things about the role. Yeah. Well, I think I know that JCU is incredibly proud of you, in prou uh, proud mm -hmm. of, of that you were a staff member and alumnus and our first, our first local boy um, chancellor. And, uh, and I think some of the insights that you've provided to, to our community are just fantastic. And we really thank you for that. And we thank you for your service to, to our university. Um, Bill, look, thank you just so much for joining us and for your, your generosity of time as always for all that you do for the university. And, and um, if there's anything, uh, anything to our wonderful community you, you, know, you want, want to convey, please do so, but... Uh, look, um, yeah, thank you for that. It's been my great joy. Thank you for the honour of inviting me to participate in this. You know, I think you can see here that it's, there's wonderful symmetry about beginning my working life in JCU in the 60s and 70s. And my career has spanned four decades of service to my country uh, as a foreign policy professional. Then I was able to come full circle uh, and uh, to allow me to give back to the university, which gave me so much uh, by being its first chancellor. It's, it's been by any measure, a fortunate life. Thank you, Bill. Thank you.